All right, so we are taking a brief hiatus from the book of Nehemiah. We've been going through Nehemiah. And um, last week we just considered in, at the end of Advent season, heading into Christmas, um, a passage in Isaiah, Rend the Heavens. Um, and this week we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13. Um, next Sunday I'll be out of town. Chris Elliott is actually going to be preaching on Ezekiel 37. Um, and then we're going to be back into Nehemiah. So this morning, 1 Corinthians 13. So if you're not there yet, you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to be looking at the first eight verses in that passage. And if you're using a pew Bible, um, you can find it on page 959. So while you're turning there, um, Tim Keller has a, a book called Making Sense of God. And um, it's kind of an apologetic book um, for people who don't have a lot of familiarity with Christianity and the Bible. And he says this on page 42. He says, Russian philosopher Vladimir Solov... I don't know, how do you say that name? Solovyov sarcastically summarized the ethical reasoning of secular humanism like this. Man descended from apes, therefore we must love one another. So the second clause obviously does not follow from the first. If it was natural for the strong to eat the weak in the past, why aren't people allowed to do it now? Given the secular view of the universe, the conclusion of love or social justice is no more logical than the conclusion to hate or destroy. These two sets of beliefs, in a thoroughgoing scientific materialism and in a liberal humanism, simply do not fit with one another. Each set of beliefs is evidence against the other. Many would call this a deeply incoherent view of the world. It doesn't follow. We descended from apes, so let's love one another. He goes on to say, if you say you don't believe in God, but you do believe in the rights of every person and the requirement to care for all the weak and poor, then you are still holding on to Christian beliefs, whether you will admit it or not. Why, for example, should you look at love and aggression both parts of life, both rooted in our human nature, and choose one as good and reject the other as bad. They are both part of life. Where do you get a standard to do that? If there's no God or supernatural realm, it doesn't exist. So love is only consistent with Christianity, certainly not with atheism. At least it's not grounded in anything. It's kind of firmly planted in midair, ethically speaking. It's not consistent with Islam. I mean, we could go on and talk about different religions. But rather than focusing out there, the question is, is love what we as Christians are known for? It certainly only makes sense with Christianity, this loving triune God who made us in his image and relational, um, with relational nature and in order to love but is this what we're known for? What are Christians known for in your life, in your relational spheres, your family members who, don't, who maybe aren't Christians, your coworkers, your neighbors? What are Christians known for? What are you known for? What am I known for? I would actually encourage you, like the next couple weeks, ask some people who are not Christians that you know, hey, what are Christians known for? 
What's the association in your mind with Christianity? Might open up a really good conversation. <laughs> so Jesus said it, John 13, remember, before he went to the cross, he washed his disciples' feet, and he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So is this what we're known for? Is this the mark of the Christian among those in your relational spheres? Remember Adam's prayer that he shared at the end of the service um, last Sunday. Lord, open the doors for the gospel, and when you do, give me the courage to walk through. So ask a few people (laughs) and watch some doors open up. I mean, the first thing you might need to do is say, you know what, sadly, you're right. We're not known for that, but we should be because look at what Jesus said in John 13. And because all of us fall short in this area, thankfully, he didn't just stop with teaching. He went to the cross to die for our lack of love, to remake us so that we could be the loving people that he intends us to be. So here we are. Another Christmas is behind us. We've finished this time of prayer and fasting. You know, we call it the, for the love of God. So now what? We're about to head into a new year, 2021, behind us. Here comes 2022, you know, with probably more problems. Okay, what else is new? What's the way forward? Well, here is the best way, 1 Corinthians 13. This is the way forward. In fact, look at the end of chapter 12. So Paul writes in 1231, it's on page 959 in the Pew Bible if you're using that. He says, earnestly desire the higher or the greater gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. So the context is the Corinthians were, you know, this church of people that had trusted Christ, become Christians. They were following Jesus, but they were really immature, very selfish, prone to pride. And so they thought highly of spiritual gifts, especially ones that were really impressive, that seemed super spiritual, like speaking in tongues or prophecy. So they were all about the higher gifts, And Paul goes through in chapter 12 and says, here's all these kind of gifts. And you know what? One's not more important than the other. All of our body parts are important. They're different, but they all serve a purpose. But if these gifts are going to be exercised well, you need love to be the manner in which it's all done because love is actually greater than the gifts. This is the best way. So in between chapters 12 and 14, talking about the exercise of the gifts. Why does God give these gifts to the church? To build up the body, to strengthen us, to grow us up, spiritually speaking. But the only way that's actually going to function in a way that's, it's, it's like the lubricant, because otherwise there's going to be all kinds of friction. Love is the lubricant that enables the church to use its gifts and grow and be built up in a way that doesn't like, you know, create all kinds of friction and heat and conflict. So the gifts are good, they're for our good, but love is the best way. This is the way forward. So Hannah read from 1 John 4. 
God is love. If you don't love, you don't know God. In this, the love of God was made manifest, that God sent his son so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice for our sins because we can't atone for our own sins. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. We love because he first loved us. And if we say we love God and we hate our brother or don't love our brother, we're a liar. So before we dive into 1 Corinthians 13, we need to put 1 Corinthians 13 in the context of the Bible. Okay, so first point was some arrows. Love, love, love. That's point number one. Okay, we need to locate 1 Corinthians 13 in the context of the big story. Okay, it's such an important passage, 1 Corinthians 13, but it's not a pathway to earn salvation. It's not how we climb the ladder to heaven. You know, if you're loving enough, you can make it. No, it's got to be read in the context of the whole letter to the Corinthians and the whole Bible as well. This is not merely some inspiring poem to be read at weddings, even though eh, it's okay to read it at weddings. It's actually not primarily about marriage. It's about the church and the inter interactions and interplay of the body as we love one another as we ought. So Christmas teaches us, shows us, that love first came down. We would not be able to love God and others if God had first not loved us. Again, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. So we wouldn't be able to love God with our whole heart if he hadn't first loved us. But because he first loved us, we can and we must love him with all of our heart and soul, mind and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. And then he shows us what this love should look like in 1 Corinthians 13. So we can't emphasize this enough. So I'm gonna give you an illustration here that's gonna, I think, carry through the message. The gospel horse of God's love in Christ pulls, drives the cart of our love. I've said that before, right? Our love is a reflex. Okay, response to his love. Okay, here's, here's maybe a way to picture it. Imagine that I am a farmer, or you are a farmer, okay? And you have got this big old John Deere tractor. So picture that, like, big monster John Deere tractor. The back tires are, you know, greater than six feet tall. This tractor's got dual tires, in the back, in the front, there's eight tires on this sucker, okay? We're talking like 400 horsepower, um, yeah, weighs like 15 tons, can pull 10 tons, it's got this central tire inflation system, if you push a button, you know, inflation goes down so you can get more gription in the field, right? Pull that plow or whatever, we get back on the road, you hit the button, Tires go back up so you can go 30 miles an hour down the road. Not everybody's excited about John Deere tractors. You know, some of you are. Um, this thing's got GPS, heated seats, pneumatic lumbar controls, sweet stereo system, auto track, whatever that is. There's a refrigerator in some of these things. 
So on the day I become a farmer, I hook up that tractor to the plow and pull it through the fields, prepping them, right, for the seeds. And then, you know, after lunch, I'm going to hook up that harrow, you know, the disc harrow that, you know, further breaks up the soil so that it'll receive the seeds and water and so forth. You wait a few days, apparently, and then you hook up the cedar to the tractor and you sow your fields and on and on. Now, listen, on year two of being a farmer, your life as a farmer, my life as a farmer, imagine that we go out and grab a couple of tough farm ropes and we tie them up to that plow and then we lace up our boots real tight and we put on our work gloves and we get a good grip on those ropes and then we start to try to pull that plow by ourselves. Just, okay. How, how far are you going to get? Like, when you struggle with that, what are you going to do? When you slip and fall, should you just berate yourself, give yourself a pep talk, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try again? Or maybe if that doesn't work, you should call up a neighbor farmer who's really tough and seasoned and have him, you know, give you a motivational speech about how you've got to be tough if you're a farmer. Maybe shame you into pulling harder until you finally get somewhere with that plow. Or maybe you just get sick of trying to do that and you just go out into the field and, you know, with a little hoe. Well, at least I'm going to get something done. So if you started the right way with these implements, hooking them to the tractor, like in the first year, getting all this done and reaping this great harvest, why in the world would you ever try to carry on in future years in your own strength? That would be insane. Well, listen, I think oftentimes that's how we relate to the love of God. What happens when you fail to love again, like we all do on a daily basis? Sometimes what we do is just beat ourselves up and try harder. How, how, how far are we going to get with that strategy? Do you see how important it is for the engine to drive the plow, to drive the work? God's love is what enables and empowers our love. So you don't need the gospel of God's wonderful love just on day one or year one as a Christian. You need it every day, every year as a Christian. So how important is love? How important is the love of God for us to have rightly ordered loves? It's absolutely essential. How important is love? What, what, what about truth? Okay. Vitally important, right? Some people deify love. They try to, particularly in, in, in a particular kind of sentimental or squishy sort of way that doesn't draw any lines or have any sharp edges. You know, God is love, and then they want to flip it around. Love is God. Well, that's not going to do. That's making an idol. We don't have to pit truth against love. You know, all you need is love. How are you going to know what's loving and unloving if you don't know what's true, right? So we need truth, absolutely. God's truth has to shape and define what love is. 
But with that qualifier, we can't possibly speak too highly of the importance of love. It is everything. So let's jump now into 1 Corinthians 13 now that we've put this thing in the context of the big story. Second point, all or nothing. Let's look at verses one to three. What do I mean by all or nothing? Well, we're answering this question, how important is love, right? And those first three verses have a lot to say to us in that regard. So you remember how Jesus, one of the Pharisees, expert in the law, came to Jesus and said, what's the great commandment in the law? And how did Jesus respond? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then Jesus said, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets depend, hang on those two commandments. So in other words, love is all important. The flip side is, without love, you are nothing and gain nothing. Look at verses 1 to 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, remember the Corinthians were really impressed with speaking in tongues and, you know, really spiritual people. We, we might have a tendency to fall force on the other side, but anyway, that's another time. If I speak in the tongue, tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just making noise. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I remember one time at a church I was actually on staff at. We were searching for a teaching pastor, senior pastor, and in the interview process, the, the guy said, I'll step over dead bodies to get to the pulpit. Okay? Like, do you love preaching and teaching more than people? But isn't it for the sake and the good of the people that you're actually doing the preaching and teaching? Like, Something's wrong there. So you could be the best teacher, preacher, you know, just have all this insight, writing these great books, but if you don't have love, what's it all for? You're nothing. Look at verse three. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned like a martyr, but have not love, some people have done these things trying to gain heaven. This is serious. Love is all. Without it, you're nothing. You have nothing. It's that important and central. All or nothing. All or nothing. Love needs to be all or we are nothing. So if it's that important, we better know what it is and what it looks like to live it out. So point number three, what love is and what it does, verses four to seven. So we're going to just walk down through this, make some comments as we go along. I'll make some comments to unpack some things as we go along. But I would encourage you to take some time, maybe this afternoon, this week, maybe repeatedly through this week to slowly, prayerfully read this description of love and ask God 
to change you, to shape you, to strengthen you. Lord, help me be honest with myself. Where do I need to repent? Where do I need your grace to get worked in? So what love is and what it does. First, love is patient and kind. Love is patient and kind because God is patient and kind. So in Romans 2, Paul writes this about, uh, he's speaking to religious hypocrites. He said, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Do you see what that text says about God? He's patient, he's kind, and his patience and his kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. Or Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? How How do you do that? Where's the strength? Where's the John Deere tractor to be able to do that? As God in Christ forgave you. When you were hitched up to that engine, you can forgive others. You can be kind to one another and tenderhearted because you're so aware and so thankful for how God has been kind and tenderhearted to you. Or look at Titus chapter 3. Why don't you flip there, actually? Titus chapter 3. So if, if you've got a pew Bible... don't think that's my phone. (laughs) I don't have mine with me. Um, So Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. And again, this is gospel logic. This is get the tractor before the plow gospel logic. Look at this. Titus 3, 1. Titus writes, or Paul writes to Titus um, as far as how to shepherd these folks in Crete, the church in Crete. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Christians should be the best citizens. To be obedient. To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle. To show perfect courtesy toward all people. What are, what are Christians known for? In our neighborhoods. In our city. Hopefully these things by God's grace. For we ourselves, we need to be reminded because we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness, that's the same word as kind, kindness, um, love is kind in 1 Corinthians 13. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, his kindness personified is Jesus. When Jesus showed up, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. No. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you see it? How how do you live like this? Well, it's because of God's grace in your life. It's God's kindness. He saved you. So when you're dealing with others, you can relate to them in the same way that God has related to you. John Deere Tractor, 
driving the plow, driving the cedar. As one commentator pointed out, the kindness of Christians in the second century so surprised their pagan counterparts that according to Tertullian, who's an early church father, they called Christians Christiani, which means made up of mildness or kindness, rather than Christiani, which means follower of Christ. So wouldn't it be great if that was the case? They're so kind, those Christians. So love is patient and kind. Because God is patient and kind. And when the John Deere tractor of God's patience and kindness in Christ gets hooked up to our life, we will be patient and kind. Next, love does not envy or boast. So what kills love? There's a lot of things that kill love, right? But certainly this does. The emptiness and insecurity that leads to inferiority and superiority complexes. You know what I'm talking about? Like, if I'm empty and insecure, I don't know who I am, what am I going to do? I'm going to envy people who have what I want, who seems like they're doing better than me. I'm feeling inferior. I envy them. And I can't love them. In fact, I might secretly hope that they stumble and fall because then I'll feel a little bit better about myself. But also, love doesn't boast superiority complex, looking down on others. But why do people get puffed up with pride and boast? Because they need to be better than other people. And we criticize people in our minds or to others to knock them down a notch or two to help ourselves feel better, more righteous. If their balloon flies higher than ours, we want to try to you know, pop some holes in that thing to make it drop. Love does not envy or boast because, listen, if you know the love of God for you that's not based on your performance, that's way beyond anything that you deserve, it fills you up. And when you are full of God's grace and his love and his kindness and his patience and his goodness for you, you know who you are. And you are set free. You're secure and confident in that sense, but you don't have to be prideful. You're secure. You don't have to think, oh, I'm not as good as so-and-so. Instead, you can love those around you because you're not so fixated on yourself and trying to cobble together some semblance of security from, you know, whatever, what you have or what you do or whatever. So love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Instead, it's humble and it's considerate. It's not pridefully puffed up. It humbly seeks to build others up. So it's not rude or indecent. Treating people disrespectfully dismissively, using people like tools. Instead, it's sensitive and kind, treating other people with the inherent dignity and worth as image bearers of God. So love is not arrogant or rude. 
Next one, love does not insist on its own way. So if you, if you are insisting on your way, your own way all the time, it's this terrible mixture of pride and selfishness. People who always insist on their own way are a bad combination of those things. My way is better than yours, and I have to have my way. Pride, selfishness. Love, on the other hand, is flexible. It knows what hills are worth dying on. It knows when to not sweat the small stuff. It knows what a mountain is and what a molehill is and not to confuse the two. And it wants no needless strife. Love makes us shock absorbers and peacemakers, not steamrollers. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is most interested in the well-being of the other. Just a little bit earlier in 1 Corinthians 10.24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And then Paul says, just as I treat to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Listen, does this not throw you back into the seat of that John Deere tractor? I mean, come on. This is impossible. Like, look at how heavy that plow is. Look at how much of a field you've got to plow. But man, you hook up that plow to that 400 horsepower John Deere tractor of the love of God in Christ and over the course of a lifetime, you are going to bear a lot of fruit. Not in your own strength, but in his. Next, love is not irritable or resentful. Resentful sometimes is translated as keeps no record of wrongs. So love isn't touchy, it's not defensive, it's not bitter, it's not easily provoked, it's not prickly. <laughs> Again, just that one alone is enough to you know, cause us to admit that we need a savior, I hope. So one quick thought on the latter description, this resentful or keeps no record of wrongs. Imagine where we'd be if God kept a record of wrongs to pay us for what we deserve. Like obviously, Without Jesus, that's what we will get in hell. We'd all be toast. He doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve. Jesus suffered and died in our place so that we could have not what we deserve, but megatons of mercy and grace now and forever. Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's how he's dealt with us. So what are we doing with our little notebooks? Keeping record of wrongs in our marriages, or in other contexts as well. We've been forgiven an infinite debt. And when that big tractor is pulling our lives, we can let go of bitterness and resentment when our fellow human beings sin against us. We can do the hard work of weeding bitterness out of our souls when that tractor of God's love and grace is hooked up to the cultivator. Now, this first phrase in that line, it's not irritable. I want to camp out on this for a minute. So, 
not irritable, love is not irritable, or easily provoked is another translation of that um, Greek word. So John Bloom, if you've been here for a while, we recommended a book called Don't Follow Your Heart several years ago. Excellent book, um, highly recommended. He also has a series of articles entitled Lay Aside the Weight of dot, dot, dot. And he answers that in a bunch of different ways. It's a bunch of different articles. One of them that I read a while ago has stuck with me ever since. It's called Lay Aside the Weight of Irritability. So I'm going to quote at length from this, and I think you'll see why. So he starts off with some personal confession, and maybe we all can um, identify with this. Sunday morning, the Bloom family is bustling to the van for church, and a debate arises between two or three about who's going to sit where. We're cutting it close for time as it is. Out of my mouth come firm words in a sharp tone. Stop the bickering. Get in and sit down. Saturday, early afternoon. The Saturday family chore list is still long, and my anxiety rises when I think that we won't get done what, do- what needs to get done. I move into sergeant mode, mar- <laughs> sergeant mode and start barking brusque orders. Things get done, but the family tone has turned surly. Weekday night, about 9 p.m., I enter the children's bedroom to give the occupants their bedtime blessing and find clothes and toys still on the floor. With a clap of my hands, I tersely say, get up and get these things put away now. You were told to do this earlier. Yeah, guilty. Nothing like peaceful bedtime blessing. Irritability, I give in to it too often. Our irritability springs out of the soil of selfishness and springs up fast like the sin weed that it is We get irritated or easily provoked when something we want is being denied, delayed, or disrupted. It works like this. Give some examples. When I'm weary, I want rest. But if it is denied, delayed, or disrupted, I get irritated. When I'm sick or in pain, I want relief. But if it's denied, delayed, or disrupted, I get irritated. When I'm preoccupied, I want uninterrupted focus. But if it's denied, delayed, disrupted, I get irritated. When I'm running late, I want to avoid appearing negligent. But if that avoidance of that bad thing is denied, delayed, or disrupted, I get irritated. And we could go on with examples. So he says the reason irritability is unloving is that it's a selfish response to an obstacle to our desire. What we desire may not be sinful. But a selfish response to its denial, delay, or disruption is a failure to trust God and often a failure to love, value, and serve another human soul. Jesus didn't die for our punctuality, earthly reputation, convenience, or our leisure, but he did die for souls. It's likely that the worth of the souls we're irritable with is infinitely more precious to God than the thing we desire. Did you hear that? He didn't die for our punctuality, earthly reputation, convenience, or our leisure, but he did die for souls. It's likely that the worth of the souls we're irritable with is infinitely more precious to God than the thing we desire. We must not dishonor God whose image that that person bears by being irritable with them. There are necessary times for considered, thoughtful, measured, righteous, loving anger at priceless but sinful souls, but there is never a right time for irritability. Love is not irritable. We need help. We need grace. But the point of this is not just, man, you're a terrible farmer. (laughs) It's check out that John Deere tractor and make sure you get your life hooked up to it. 
So, let's keep going. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing or injustice, but rejoices with the truth. And then verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Or maybe your translation says love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I like this translation. Love never tires of support. Love never loses faith. Love never exhausts hope. Love never gives up. So the only way that we're gonna love like this is to do the hard work of relational farming, right, for the long haul. But the only way we're gonna do that hard work for the long haul is by the power of the engine of the love of God for us. So Paul lived this out with the Corinthians. They were pretty stubborn, you know, incorrigible, kind of prone to wander people. God in Christ has loved this out live this out with us. And we're pretty stubborn, incorrigible, slow to wander, slow to learn, quick to wander, prone to wander people. So, finally, in verse eight, love never ends, it never fails, it endures forever. You know, they were so focused on the gifts, so fixated on that, but they needed to be fixated on love. Love endures forever. Knowledge will ultimately cease, gifts will cease, you know, but love never ends. That perfect love that will endure forever, even in heaven, has already broken into human history. First at the coming of Christ, right? First Christmas, and then everything will be perfect love when Jesus returns again and sets everything right. But Christmas is all about love in the flesh. Jesus is what love looks like. He is love incarnate. In fact, it's interesting. In Matthew 22, when that guy comes up and asks Jesus, hey, what's the, most, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love God, love your neighbor. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Do you know that word hang or depend is also the word for Jesus hanging on the cross. Jesus hung on the cross. God's love for fallen, guilty, rebel sinners like you and me in human flesh. He loved us like that so the law that we've broken could be fulfilled. He perfectly fulfilled that law of love. And then he paid the penalty of our sin on the cross so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. So that the Spirit could be given to us so that knowing the love of God, we would love God in response and love our neighbor as God in Christ has loved us. So we could summarize it like this. We need to know, experience the love of God through Christ. We only receive that with the empty hands of faith. In order that we can show the love of God, through Jesus, respond to God and to others in order that the world will know the love of God through Jesus. This is the way forward, brothers and sisters, into the new year for the rest of our lives. This is the best way. This is the way forward following the way, the truth, and the life. This is the most excellent way. Let's walk it this year. So the prayer again, Lord, open the doors 
for the gospel, for gospel love. And when you do, give me the courage to walk through. Fill us up with your love so that we can give your love. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So this is the way forward. Let's walk in it. A couple quotes here as the worship team comes up. We're going to close with the song, The Love of God. A couple of quotes here. Ray Ortland says this, How justifiably does the world look at divided churches and think, When you Christians figure out how to get along, we might talk. But until then, we're not interested. What's at stake among us Christians is nothing less than the testimony that the Father has sent the Son. It's not just our credibility at stake, but Jesus's as the one sent from God. The unity within our churches, as well as with all true Christians, born out of love, is not a little garnish on the side, if we happen to like that sort of thing. Our unity exalts Jesus in the eyes of the world as the true Son of God sent from the Father. All his claims convincing, all his purposes desirable, all his promises reliable. This was important enough for Jesus that he prayed for it. Do we? Do we share his passion, or do we treat it as an option while giving ourselves to our own priorities. Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples if you love like this. And then before he died, he prayed this. I don't ask for these only, my disciples, but also for all who believe in me through their word. That's you and me. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Francis Schaeffer writes this, this always causes me to cringe. If as Christians we do not cringe, it seems to me we are not very sensitive or very honest because Jesus here gives the final apologetic. What is the final apologetic? Reason to believe that they may all be one in love so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In John 13, the point was that if any If an individual Christian does not show love toward other true Christians, the world has a right to judge that he is not a Christian. Here Jesus is stating something else which is much more cutting, much more profound. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. Without true Christians loving one another, Christ says the world cannot be expected to listen. Even when we give proper answers, the final apologetic which Jesus gives is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. This is the way forward. 1 Corinthians 13 testifies to this. In John 13, Jesus testifies to this. In John 17, Jesus prays for this. So let's pray for this. Tractor pulling the plow of our lives that our lives may testify to this, to the great, great love of the Father through Christ. Amen.